My name is John Clark. I'm a licensed therapist, group practice owner, and a guide for therapists in private practice. I help therapists fill the empty slots on their calendar and build a better business without all the overwhelm. I'm so glad that you are here today. Do me a quick favor and rate, review, and subscribe to this show wherever you are listening. All right, let's dive in. Welcome back to the show, guys. It's John Clark here, licensed therapist and business coach, helping therapists build a better business without all the overwhelm. Really excited for my next guest. There's a guy I haven't seen in quite a while, but <laughs> at least not in real life, but I've seen him uh, floating around the internet and doing really big things. And I'm super excited to introduce him here in one second, but I've also got to make a plug for my own thing real quick. And it's very related to this discussion today because um uh, we just opened the doors to our Business Made Human program. This is an exclusive mastermind to help therapists um, build a business, um, a profitable business that also gives their life uh, meaning and purpose and is really designed around your life and your purpose. So maybe this is a perfect melding of, <laughs> of minds today with, with my guest here, Brian Boucher. Um, he is the author of The Purpose Factor, and he has basically uh, kind of dedicated his life to helping people uh, find purpose in, in all that they do. Um, and I'm just excited to hear more about what that means, how Brian got here, at some point, I'll tell you how I know him. But for now, Brian, maybe help us fill in the rest of the kind of uh, introduction. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having on, man. It's good. It's good to see you. We've known each other a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, now I'm turning 33 next week, and so so this is this, know, is, wild, scary, this is a while now. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it. I mean, it. We'll probably unpack the journey as we go along in our conversation. But um, I was in a place probably seven years ago. Uh, probably in the depths of depression would be the best way to describe it, searching for my purpose. And uh, I had a lot of great mentors, but none of them could tell me how to find my purpose. And I was probably frustrated with this sentiment that uh, that I needed to go find it in a sunset or backpack through Europe or some stuff like that. And that that just didn't satisfy me. I got a logical thinking brain and and I wanted to break purpose down to parts and help people discover purpose in parts and and logically and sequentially and and in a way, help them discover what should I do in my career? What kind of entrepreneur should I be? Uh, if I have passion projects, which one of them is actually real and aligned with who I am? And, and quite frankly, back then, I wasn't trying to write a book on purpose. I wasn't trying to create programs. I wasn't trying to speak on any of that stuff. I had just been laid off from my dream job as a national journalist. And I was just trying to get back to that. You know, I was just trying to go back to the old blueprint. And, um, and that wasn't working. But but when I saw what I had in front of me in terms of how to discover purpose, I'm like, oh, wait a second, I can have a lot of people with this. And that's really where all this started, probably at the at the top line. Okay. So some some kind of traditional ways of finding purpose didn't really work for you. It sounds like, you know, the old go backpacking in Europe and find yourself or, or South America and find yourself. Basically, you know, it's like people with a quarter life crises of some sort of who am I, what's this all for? And a lot of times people go, I need to literally turn my life upside down and go get lost for a while <laughs> to hopefully yeah. find purpose. Or in some yeah. cases to just have a really long or expensive vacation where you 
are just on Instagram and not finding purpose. <laughs> so the, the traditional you go on this vacation. Is, yeah. yeah, you go on vacation to escape and then you get on Instagram and you scroll everything that reminds you of where you yeah. just were. But now the only difference is you're three to $10,000 lighter in the wallet for the yeah. vacation. Yeah. <laughs> I'll find purpose when I get back home to my nine. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, yeah. So say more about that. So like the kind of traditional ways or some of the advice you got just wasn't helping you get there, find that get to the depths of what would be your purpose and your next big step professionally. So how did that happen? I mean, it was, I mean, I'll, I'll run through like where I was. I mean, yeah. I, I had just been laid off from my dream job after 10 months of having it. Uh, I went through a divorce. Divorce was final in the same month that the layoff was final. That was nice. So I was completely bottomed out. Uh, childhood sexual trauma at age seven undealt with at the time. And, and all of that was kind of weighing on me in a big way. And, and that was what was causing these existential questions. Who am I? What's my identity? What's my purpose? What do I do with it? And, and nobody could provide me answers to those questions or how to answer those questions. And, and that's what left me asking the question, are there parts to purpose? And, and could I discover it in a sequence? But then I came to realize through my research that there are myths about purpose that get people really thrown off. And, and one of the first things we do in our book, The Purpose Factor, is we dispel the myths. Because before you know what something is, you have to know what something is not. And, and one of the big ones that people fall prey to all the time is to falsely equate purpose with passion. Mm. And they're not the same thing. And what's fascinating, if you go into like Oxford Dictionary and you start going through all the definitions, when you open up the Oxford Dictionary on the, on the subject of passion or the word passion, uh, definition is barely controllable emotion. A barely controllable emotion, and you start to you start to see the problem with the word passion is that well, you could have some barely controllable emotions for good things, but you could have some barely controllable emotions for some highly destructive things when it comes to your life. And this other thing too, and I think our generation is probably guilty of this, and certainly the next generation too, and Gen Z, really guilty of making really tough circumstances or really bad things sound okay. Like, I don't know what I'm doing and I've just been fired, but we call it, I'm in transition. And yeah. so we're really good about adjusting our language and being good PR people over our life. And so passion has become this, we, we, somebody would say something like this, I'm passionate about coffee. In reality, they just like it. It doesn't mean they should start a coffee shop. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people are choosing directions in life that they'll spend two, five, 10 years working on and it really was just something that they liked, not really something they were passionate about, just to like. You know, I like playing the mandolin, but I'm not great at it. And you're not going to find yeah. me on the Opry stage. And I shouldn't pursue the next 10 years trying to get there. Yeah. So that, that's an interesting um, crossroads or a fork in the road for a lot of people is <clears throat> that whole thing of like, you know, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day again in your life or wh whatever yeah. it is. Right. So if it's mandolin, like, let me just will it to be um, a, a mandolin mm -hmm. player. Cause I yeah. love it. Or for a lot of young people, first of all, I think it's incredible that we ask young people a day after high school to figure out what you are, <laughs> what you want to be when you grow up and yeah. then go spend tens of thousands of dollars doing it only to then probably yeah. find, oops, <laughs> I didn't experience life yet or enough life to figure yeah. out if I was trending the right direction. So, yeah. 
I mean, we make these pres- it, it, it felt like when, when you sign those promissory notes on student loans, because I went to law school and that was a big freaking promissory note. And you're like, this feels fake. You, you should run a credit check. You should do something. Because I this I, I don't feel like I, I might be 23, 24, but I don't feel like I have the capacity to drop six figure amounts on law school right now. And is this really a good decision? It turned out to be an OK decision for me, but for most people, it's not. And we really do. And, and you said something really, really great. I'm glad you brought that up. This idea of if you love what you'll do, you'll never work a day in your life. I, I, I've always wanted to adjust that quote to say, if you'll fall in love with what you do, you'll mm-hmm. never work a day in your life because you don't always start out in love. I guarantee you, Gabrielle did not love me on the first day of our relationship. I had uh, back then I was a, probably a raging, mild narcissist uh, back for sure. Definitely. Um, probably not fully over my divorce, but Hey, let's yeah. start dating again. And, and, and she probably did not love me on my first time for sure. And she said, I didn't like you on the first phone call. <laughs> and so she fell in love with me. Yeah. And, and this is what, what I get back to about passion. Passion grows over time. Uh, you know, because if you, if you do find something that's in alignment with your purpose, because purpose, purpose is the best of what you have to help or love others. Okay. The best of what you have to help others, mm-hmm. everything you've got in your life, all the perspective, wisdom, skills, natural abilities, the best of what you have to help people. Now you're not always great out of the gate at doing something. Like if you have a new skill, you're probably not gonna be able to help people very much at first, but as you grow into that skill, and you see how your life is transforming the outcomes of other people's lives, then you start to fall in love with it more because you get the feedback loop from how you're helping people. And that's where passion, good passion comes from. And it gets addicting in a good way. I think it's the mm-hmm. only thing, the thing that the, the one thing in the world that's probably good to be addicted to is fulfillment, which is that your life is impacting or changing the life of another. And passion catches up to growth in skills growth in your natural uh, abilities. Um, so I think that that's probably a really, uh, a really sharp point that you brought up about mm. it is good to love what you do, but sometimes you got to fall in love with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. For sure. Th- this is interesting because, um, well, I'm a therapist and uh, I, I'm not full disclosure. <laughs> this guy's not a therapist. <laughs> well, what's interesting is in therapy, you often have people like me, where somewhere along the way it was, um, okay. Miss Hamas in high school, she's the one that helped me fall in love with psychology. So I fell in love with psychology and I was just kind of told all my life, I'd be, I'm a good listener. I'd be good at helping people. Mm-hmm. And very luckily, I think I was also found out I was good at it too. I was good at psychology. It was the first kind of subject matter that I really grasped. And anyway, I'm lucky in that from being a high schooler on, I knew I wanted to be a therapist. Mm -hmm. It just so happens that I can make money doing that. And it's tremendously fulfilling. I meet now a lot of kind of second or third career therapists. I see this a lot nowadays, actually more and more of the stockbroker, you know, who's been working on wall street for 30 years and goes, now I just want to help people, right? Like I've made my bag and, and I just want to help people more meaning. And so it's kind of like, did, did he, um, just not have meaning this whole time. Could he have had more meaning in that career, like working on Wall Street? I think so. Yeah. Um, but there's people that go 180 and go, I just want to help people. I've made my money. I just want to help people, right? Mm-hmm. There's also people like, for instance, um, uh, my father-in-law who has you know an MBA from Berkeley and works in business. And he finds it very fulfilling, not in the spreadsheets that he makes, but in the way that he does it, the people on his team, just the idea of being part of something, right? 
being part of growing something. He takes pride in excellence, right? In whatever he does. So he doesn't need to be a therapist to feel like I'm doing good, right? Or helping people. Yeah. So I'm curious your thoughts on all that. And especially on the like midlife or later life crisis of I should just be a therapist yeah. so I can help people full time. <laughs> yeah, we meet people in the quarter life crisis and the midlife crisis. Yeah. And, um, and this idea of helping people. Okay, so it's purpose is the best of what you have to help people. What, what that means is you shouldn't just say, my wife calls it the Miss America answer. You know, what do you want to do? How do you want to impact? I just want to help people. Mm -hmm. Well, great. That's so general. It's not useful. Uh, Do you want to help the lady next door uh, paint the walls in her house because it would be dangerous for her to be on a ladder? Do you want to help me with my taxes? I doubt it. Most people don't want to help me with my taxes. Um, What you want to help people in is what you're best at, because not only are you going to be able to help them better, love them better, take them to a place of excellence easier, but you're going to get more intrinsic motivation out of it and more fulfillment out of it too. And, and so on the, on the subject of helping people, when you don't want to stop at the conclusion, well, I just want to help people. And there, it, what's interesting too, is you get people who have been in very successful careers and that might make sense by the way, that people who are like in the stock in stocks go into therapy. Cause like they better than anybody else might really know what mood swings feel like uh, on a day-to-day basis yeah. and, and managing your emotions. So some personal, uh, probably some, can empathetically relate uh, very much, but it, you don't want to stop at this idea of just helping people. You want to take the time. One of the things that we say is that you want to take the time to be selfish enough to discover your purpose, mm-hmm. discover the best of what you have to help others, and then be selfless enough to help others with it. Oftentimes people run right to helping people. And then they get into like this martyr complex. Like they have to be the hero of everything. They're the one that yeah. does everything all the time. I, I just, they never stop and they got to wear this cape and it becomes like a martyr thing. Yeah. Um, but if they would take the time to know what they have, that's the best of it. They'd be more secure, more confident, and then be able to help people to a place of deeper fulfillment. And there's, I think there's this misperception too, that if you want to help people, you need to be like uh, a pastor, start a nonprofit or whatever, all the, all the things that we traditionally view as helping people, doctor, nurse, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But you can help someone execute a mortgage. You can help someone execute right. a contract. Right. And if that's in alignment with who you are, you're going to get a ton of fulfillment out of it. Yeah. And if you're really, really great at it and treat people and love people with that craft, you're going to have incredible relationships too. Yeah. Yeah. This is amazing because what it means is that for a lot of people uh, you know, who are going to be listening to this, you actually might be closer to your purpose than you think. Right. Again, so my father-in-law with that example he just figured that out somewhere along the way that I don't need to like join Peace Corps when I'm 45 <laughs> freaking out sure. to have more meaning. Yeah. Right. And, and I do think it is about using your gifts um, and to, yeah, to have the most impact on, on people around you. And, and ultimately people have an innate desire to want to help people. They just don't know how, how to do it. Or, um, you know, I talk a lot about, um, I use the, the analogy of like a cockpit. So for instance, I've, you know, I work with a lot of successful people, a lot of entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. um, people who've got lots of money. And at some point, sometimes they have so much money that now they don't know what to do with it or they have less and less purpose, yeah. the more money they have. Right. Cause that was their one goalpost for a very long time. Then they finally hit it and they go, now what? Yeah. Right. So in this example, I think of a cockpit and it's like, okay, that dial of finance you nailed it, right? That one has been firing on all cylinders at the expense of the rest of your 
dials, right? Relationships, your health, right? Your own kind of growth or spirituality, your creativity, you know, your friends, all these things. So it's like, great, you crushed it in that one dial. And all the other others have been at zero, right? Or negative <laughs> this whole time. Yeah. You know, so that's another piece too, is um, how do you measure success, right? And if you ask a person, how do, are you successful? A lot of people are just stumped by that question. And they immediately go to yes or no, based on how much money I make. And for, the, for therapists, it's usually either you're either making 100 grand or, or not, right? If you're making 100 grand or more, that's the gold standard for success in, for therapists in private practice. Yep. If not, yep. you, you might not be successful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that question about what is success to you? A lot of people who set off to make a bunch of money, they don't ask the question, well, what, 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 what's that point? What is that target? Um, for some it's 10 million, for some it's a million, for some it's 500 grand, for some it's a billion dollars. Great. Yeah. Good. You might have a craft. You might be really great at, you know, creating wealth. Um, I think we fail to ask that question all the time, which is what is enough in terms of that? Yeah. And what is success? Look, when I, um, one of the things I learned about myself in overcoming my childhood trauma was that. In that trauma, I was treated transactionally. I was used for someone else's purposes. Then I mirrored that in my intimate relationships. And then I realized something else. I mirrored being transactional in my business relationships. Yeah. So I was all about the transaction, all about the clothes, all about what I could get from people, my agenda, all this stuff. Mm. And then I realized when I bought nearly bottomed out one summer in my business mm -hmm. and I thought the trash truck was the tow truck coming to take my car away. Um, when, I, when I bottomed out, I learned very, very quickly that no, 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 it's not transaction. It's transformation. Mm -hmm. Stop focusing on financial transactions, focus on fulfillment transactions. And what is a fulfillment transaction? It's where you take your life and what you have, the best of what you have to help others and you transform an outcome of another person or you transform their life in some way. And they have this before and after moment because they met you. That is a fulfillment transaction. Mm. Crazy stuff. When I started focusing on fulfillment transactions as my currency, the other currency caught up behind it exponentially. Yeah. Um, but because I was focused transactionally originally, it was, it was eluding me. You know, money, it's like money was running from me. Um, and, and hence the, the tow truck. Yeah. Uh, but that fulfillment transaction has become my focus and it's, it's become really special to me because now, you know, after six or seven years of you know, researching and on purpose and all this stuff and like getting to try get to train Air Force colonels responsible for all basic military training of the entire Air Force on purpose. It was the coolest thing ever in the last mm. couple of years. And it, it's a weird it's weird to look at that versus where I was seven years ago. And that's happening because of a transformation focus, not a transaction focus. Mm -hmm. And every day now I get some evidence of somehow somebody's life has been changed. I just found out that one of our students of one of our digital programs from a few years ago, last year in India started a movement which distributed 1.15 million meals during COVID into the slums of India. That's a mega fulfillment transaction. That's his that you, you can't even fathom that. And you, then you find out that that was back when your webinars only had like a couple of viewers. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know the ripple of how you help either. That's what's interesting too, is, um, you know, for, for a therapist, for instance, you know, our, our audience, the help is pretty immediate, right? In that you are in session client shares something and you share the right thing, or you have a really good response or you just, mm -hmm reflect what you're hearing and you see them change, right? You see them 
feel better or have a realization, right? Or they come back one session and say, hey, I did that thing that I've been putting off for two years, right? So you get some of that, um, that, um, that feedback. And I think that's also at times what people want is the more abstract your work becomes, sometimes it's, it becomes harder and harder to know, like, what am, what am I really doing here? You know, the other example is like, I work with a lot of, um, you know, tech people. I'm here in San Francisco. So my therapy practice is here. And um, uh, I work with a lot of software engineers that are really, really good software engineers. And that's actually like, they love their craft, right? They love writing code. Yep. That's how they got here. A lot of them are self-taught. Yep. Slowly over time, because they're the best engineer on the team, they get promoted to manager, right? And then, and then promoted again and promoted again. And then all of a sudden, they're not writing any code right? They're very disconnected from that craft and yep. they struggle to like really become the leader, right? Be or they've just seniority. They've just lasted long enough at the company to be the manager. Yep. And then they're going, I, I, I'm telling you, I meet people all the time that have then that, that, oh crap moment of like, well, I can't become underemployed now. I can't just quit and go get an entry level software engineer yeah. job, but that's kind of what I yep. want. Right, because that's when I was feeling yeah. my best and practicing my craft. But their ego, their ego doesn't want that. It, whether the consciously or subconscious, and the money's way too good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they just end up kind of accidentally in that position, which again, by uh, traditional standards, that's success. Right, you're you're yep. managing a whole bunch of people, and you're making a whole bunch more money than they are. Right, but where am I, and who am I helping? And it gets really abstract, right? Because again, they're the ones who are building the walls, so to speak, and you're the one in the office, you know, sketching out the plans or just making sure people are building the walls. And the people are out there at the end of the day, going, "Hey, I built that wall," right? And mm -hmm. that there's something really impactful about that—the immediacy of I did a thing, and here's the result. Right, I am impactful because I. I created something. I affected change in my environment. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to watch because most managers and leaders don't find ways to see how their managerial or leadership work is connected to the production of the result. Yeah. And when you create that disconnection, you, you no longer see the connection of what you have to help others and the result. And the moment that goes away, you feel like you're on a treadmill. You feel like you're on a hamster wheel. I mean, I, I was, I was working with, I work with a, a bunch of executives and, and I was working with a guy who his company become very successful in the human resources space, but he, in fact, and he could probably hire a CEO or an executive vice president to take care of the day-to-day -day management. So he could stay locked and loaded as a visionary, but he hadn't done that yet. And the reason he wasn't fulfilled, despite the success of the company, it's completely disconnected from the, the end result. And being disconnected from the end result, I told him, I said, here's the deal. You either have to fire yourself from this job so you can be more visionary, or you need to fire yourself from some of the responsibilities of this job right. and eliminate, automate, delegate something so that yeah. you can get back to what drives you. Because the moment that you start losing steam and fulfillment, is the moment the whole company starts losing steam and fulfillment because you're the spearhead. You're the one. You're the. It's as John Maxwell calls it the law of the lid. You're going to put the cap on your organization the moment mm -hmm. you stop growing. Yeah, yeah. You're the bottleneck because you're the only one mm -hmm. with ideas around here. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and if you stop having ideas or if you stop existing, the whole thing, you know, yep. goes upside down. Wait, here, here's an interesting um, kind of vignette for you, Brian, and. Uh, you know, again, our, our therapists who are listening, here's a, tr here's a very typical path for a therapist. A lot of therapists want to get out of 
crappy agency jobs, nonprofit. They're making 30K a year. They're working 60 yeah. hours a week. There's uh, billing issues. There's liability. They're really uh, they're tough situations, right? Or they're in college mm-hmm. counseling where they're seeing 35 students a week with no breaks or whatever it is. Yeah. So the dream for most of them is private practice, right? And what that usually means is I need to somehow go from my very consistent but exhausting job with healthcare and benefits to a private practice. And what success usually looks like is a fully booked private practice. One of my, my programs is called fully booked. So we help them yeah. with that first step um, uh, among other things. But so they do that. So they, they usually build slow. And then maybe if they've got 10, 15 clients, they leave their full-time job. It's scary, but they can do it. They get yep. full. And then again, the next ticker mark is usually a hundred grand a year, right? That's a big number. And that's mm-hmm. twice as much as they were making at the college counseling center or whatever. Yep. And then something really interesting happens. And this is where our business made human program comes in is they go, I've got 20 clients a week. I'm making 140 grand a year. I'm seeing the clients that I like, but now, now what? Right. Mm-hmm. I know that I can help more people and I have so much knowledge and wisdom and passion, but I'm just delivering it to one person at a time. So a lot of them start thinking about things like an online course or membership or a podcast or like they get, they get antsy and they also see that like, okay, if I've helped these 20 people, there's probably 2 million people just like them, but I'm here stuck in yep. session. And like the dream, which was a full practice has been achieved. Now what? And yeah, the sessions are meaningful, right? On a session to session basis, on a daily basis, but they get restless again. They start going, now what? So I know you help people figure this question out in terms of entrepreneurs and the shiny objects and the, mm-hmm. what yeah. do I do next? So what, what would you do with that kind of therapist if you were helping? Yeah, because once you start hitting those benchmarks, you have to come up with a new blueprint. Yeah. You know, I had this blueprint in your head. Now you've achieved the blueprint. Now what do you do? Do you create a new one? How do you reframe it? How do you create a new one? And it is... And you run out of hours. Time is the most precious resource. It's cliche to say that, but it's true. Um, You run out of hours. And if you don't change something or keep growing beyond where you are, we have this need for certainty and uncertainty. Well, now you got a lot of certainty. You got a full practice. You have all these clients, but you you need a little bit of that excitement of growth again. And, and, And it's hard because most entrepreneurs start out and, and eventually just stay one man band. And there it's, they, you have this belief, which is not necessarily true, but get this belief that only you can do it. And I can't have anybody do it as as I would. Well, that's definitely the truth. You can't. Um, One of the rules of delegation is if somebody else can do it 80% of what you do, Mm -hmm. then you should still delegate it. And, and it becomes, it it becomes an exercise in letting go of control. Um, You're going to have to let go of control because, you, you can't accomplish really great things beyond your with, with just yourself. You have to you have to grow. You have to have a team. Uh, and so that can be a scary moment, though. That can be a hugely scary moment because now it's, you know, if I don't have any if I go from fully booked to no clients, it's just me. You know, it's just me, but it's not um, three, four or five, six people in my oh. business that are depending on me to drive revenue results, traffic. Mm-hmm. And and I will say this, it's 
it's first be driven by the fulfillment transactions. Know that you have learned and mastered how to take care of people as a therapist. Mm -hmm. Now go train other therapists who may be newer, lesser experienced than you train them to be as good as you or yeah. get close to as good as you. So you can replicate yourself and others. Yeah. And then you can start to have that exponential impact. Um, yeah. And then of course, on the entrepreneurial side, on the digital entrepreneurship side, that offers the ultimate in scalability, right? Yeah. That's yeah. the, that's the best place to go. And that's where you can help the most people. Yeah. And um, I, that, those that moments really interesting. Yeah. Cause I, it's very interesting to me that and it's impressive to me that you have extracted something so abstract as purpose <laughs> into a program that you can walk people through online. Right. I mean that th this is how I created fully booked was I had a big stinking problem in my life, which was how to get clients from my therapy practice. I figured it out over many years, iterations, research, right. Banging my head against the wall. And I thought, well, if it works for me, it'll probably work for other people, but Oh my gosh, how do I retrace my steps? and then put it into yep. a program, right? That not only just one person could go through, but tens, hundreds, whatever it is. Um, so I'm, it's really interesting that you were able to do that. And again, therapists have the same dilemma because they go, all right, I have a very, very powerful way of helping, you know, uh, teenage boys with anger, right? Mm -hmm. For instance, right? It's like they've developed essentially their own model for how to do that. And then they go, how do I, how do I, you know, extract that and then help tons more people with it. Potentially mm -hmm. that's, that's really hard to do. So, and I'm curious how you were able to do that with purpose, you know, that's a really purpose work. Yeah. I knew that, that as purpose was previously understood was that this idea of discovering purpose was very subjective and very unique to the individual. And, and in a lot of ways, the perception was pretty true. And so I decided to take on this insurmountable task of making it as objective as possible and logical as possible and segmented. I mean, we're part of what we're developing right now is we're developing a, um, an assessment to help someone discover the elements of their purpose that that gets as that's about as objective as it gets. Now for me, it's because I had, I had coached a lot of people individually, kind of like therapy. I've been worked with people individually on their purpose and their business and all of that. And you, and when you're in the weeds, you're thinking there's no way you could turn this into a process because, well, this conversation was different than this conversation. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about this and I asked him this and he answered that. And you start to think that there's no way you could turn the uniqueness of the one-on-one -on -one into something that is repeatable. But if you back out far enough, you can see patterns. Like for example, a lot of the executives that I work with, one of the primary defining moments of their life was that some parent, perhaps a father, uh, rejected them very actively or mm -hmm. passively. Um, yeah. Passively in that they just never gave them any approval or validation whatsoever, or actively by saying things like, you'll never amount to anything. And then, then they, they became this person who uh, was, was rejected by somebody that was not supposed to reject them. And then they got into the world and they're expecting rejection from people in the world. And, and now rejection is personal because it was personal in the first instance. And, and so I started seeing among all these business leaders, predominantly males, mm -hmm. that they were rejection overcomers. They, there were people that had experienced rejection. I started to see all these patterns of things that people had been through. And it's what you said. If you back up far enough and you look at it, okay, how did this happen? What's the trend? What do I do across all of my appointments? Yeah. What's this thing that I follow? It's not the unique things that happen in all of your appointments, but what it, what are the things that you do in your specific niche area of expertise that you do with repetition? That is evidence yeah. of your first intellectual property. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. I mean, 
it, there's usually what I consider like three to five big fat threads that you can grab onto. Mm -hmm. Right. Again, it's like that moment, three or four weeks into therapy where clients discover X, right. Or they consistently struggle with Y. Um, and if you can take that and grab onto it and go and give it a name, right. And go, that's X. Right. And then, Mm -hmm. and then you kind of try to arrange a sequence of sorts too. Right. And say, Mm -hmm. you know, if I walked, you know, this client through this four step sequence or whatever, then, um, that, that order kind of matters and it helps. And it, it also gives people a sense of, you know, in, in your case for your, for your clients, your students that Brian has a process, right? He has a step one for me, right. Versus like, just come in and just talk for hours about how purposeless your life is. Right. Um, and hope something comes out, which is, you know, to the discredit of therapy, maybe therapy can be, uh, overly open-ended, right. To the point of like, again, you could just come, we could commiserate for hours about how stuck you are. (laughs) And yeah, it's totally true. Because a lot of my work, a lot of my work was one-on-one and I'm like, gosh, I feel like 75% of it is just trying to empathize and commiserate instead of just get to solutions. Well, and that's why a lot of therapists are becoming coaches too, or they're set, yeah. creating a separate coaching business because they're going, yep. oh my gosh, I see that opportunity right there. If I can just jump in or just show, like tell the client what to do, which is very taboo for therapists um, in our training and kind of our culture. But um, but that's why a lot of therapists are are wanting to, you know, take take the, the to unleash a little bit in terms of how how they can help people or be even more direct or a bit more yeah, directive um, with people. And I, and I do think that's often what people need, especially if they're feeling quite lost in a part of their life is they need, again, they need to, they need you to show me that step one. Yeah, they do. So They do. And, and it's um, back to this idea. It's not, it's not the, like for people who, that you guys work, that you guys as therapists work with or people that I work with, it's not the information they know or don't know that will define the change in their life. It's how they think. Mm-hmm. And if you can teach them a new way of thinking, you've equipped them with something. For, for, for example, purpose is the best of what you have to help others. However, purpose is also a decision-making paradigm. That's what it is. It becomes this filter by which you say yes to this opportunity, no to that opportunity. What's for now? What's for later? What sequence? What order? What's aligned with who I am? What's not? I mean, focus is produced by elimination. So what's what's great about knowing your purpose is you immediately have this filter by which you can say, well, 90% of what I was thinking, definitely a no. Now we have 10%. And how do we get down to the 1% of the things that I'm absolutely amazing at? That's the filter. Uh, but it's Today we live in this information age, but we're, we're lacking wisdom and discernment. And 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 what yeah. people need the most is to learn a new way of thinking or thinking at all. I mean, we live in an age where most people don't make real decisions, and a real decision is uh, a decision that you thought about, you discerned over, and you make a proactive choice to do something, choose A over B. That's a real decision. A real and a not a real decision is when you wait for your circumstances to essentially decide for you and you call it a decision. It's because people don't know how to think and problem solve and, and all of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that part's interesting too, is giving equipping people with the ability to um, evaluate their own lives yeah. and giving them tools to make decisions, right? So again, like a lot of our, our therapists, they struggle with what to focus on next. And, 
again, they, they also struggle with having goals that I consider too shallow. So when we do, we do mission, vision, values with every therapist, starting from yeah. day one, we sketch out their ideal life. We sketch out um, metrics, how we're going to measure this stuff, um, look for how ways we're going to have impact, things like that. We even just boil it down to a single day, a day where you had a really freaking good day at work and in your life, right? Um, and we try to expand on that. So we do a lot of different things to, to try to get there. But going back to the goal example, you know, I'll ask therapists, okay, so how much money do you want to be making? Yeah. hundred grand. Why? I don't know. Sounds like a lot. Sounds, sounds like enough. Sounds, sounds like, like enough. enough. Sounds like it's more than I'm making now, yeah. right? Or I heard yeah. another therapist is making it. So you, you have to take a goal and do, basically what I do is like, I want to make a hundred grand so that I can blank, so that I can blank, so that I can blank, so I can blank. Right. And if you do that, then your goals have real depth to them. And I think that's going to, in a way, give your business more purpose and your, the way you're using your time um, more intentionally too. Cause you could see 45 clients a week and be burned out and never see your family and make a ton of yep. money, but be really <laughs> up a Creek, you know, in other ways yeah. um, you could see five clients a week and charge the right amount and then have that time to do exactly what you want. If it's part of your vision, your purpose, all this stuff. So um, people, ju- people know intuitively, and they also know intuitively when they're on the wrong track, right? So we talk a lot about dissonance, yep. right? Or cognitive dissonance, yep. when my behaviors are out of line with my beliefs, right? And a lot of people come to, 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 to me or to any therapist or a business coach or whoever when they have dissonance, right? And at some point, there's only two ways to reduce dissonance, right? Change the belief or change the behavior. So if I'm a smoker, you know, and <laughs> then I either change yep. the belief to, now smoking doesn't kill everyone. My grandma lived until she was 100 and she smoked. <laughs> and then I, I keep smoking. Yeah. Or I yeah. change the behavior and go, you know, gosh darn it, I'm going to quit smoking today, right? Because the belief yeah. and the urgency and everything boils boils over, right? And then I make a change. So it's, it's interesting what drives people to change. You're what you're doing is very psychological, similar to how we help people. It's uh, it, it, what you talked about with goals. A lot of people will make a goal that's logical. I want to yeah. make a hundred grand. And I don't mean this next statement in a bad way, but what they fail to do is establish an emotional relationship with the goal or an emotional reason for achieving the goal. Yeah, exactly. It's not a hundred grand. It's just a number and you're eventually going to achieve it if you try hard enough. Um, but you know, if it has a reason behind it, so I can get my kids to college, so I can do this, yeah. so I can start that the beginnings of that nonprofit. So whatever it is, there, there needs to be an emotional relationship with your goal to produce yeah. intrinsic motivation, not just extrinsic motivation. But that belief thing that you started, that dissonance, talk about that all the time. Yeah. When, it, it would, when, when the blueprint that you had in your mind does not match your reality, it's really, really painful. And, and I, I was working with somebody just yesterday and he wants to talk about, I got to, I got to do better in my habits. I got to have better habits, get better habits. Like, okay, stop the habits for a second. What are your current results? Yeah. Okay, great. What now, what habits led to those results? Good and bad. Give me both. Okay. Now what beliefs about yourself, the world around you and others led to those habits that led to those results. Cause if I can identify the result, then I can identify the habit then I can identify the belief. And now I can change the belief and meditate to a yeah. new neural pathway. I'm yeah. probably using. No, that's how it works. I think, cor- <laughs> I think correct terms. Yep. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, I love that stuff. You're going to get me geeking out on that stuff. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I mean, it's, 
I think another piece of it is in the mindset piece is believing that it's possible before you then go and do it. Um, yeah. to, to be honest, I didn't used to believe in this stuff very much. I'm actually not very woo woo new age. Like, you yeah. know, uh, I, I'm not big on that stuff. I don't, I'm just, never Me have been. I wasn't either. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm becoming bigger on, I guess you could say. And that again, when I see therapists who have all the right ingredients and all the right tools and they've got the website set up correctly and all this stuff, but like something's not clicking every now and then it is that they haven't committed kind of mentally to it, or they, ha- they don't fully believe that they can be successful in this. And there's little small things they do to kind of sabotage that, whether it's like the often again, therapists are afraid to talk highly of themselves or when they do a call, like an initial mm-hmm. call with a potential client, they feel it's too salesy. Yeah. I don't want to talk too much about myself. I don't want to like, you know, pump myself up when in reality it's like, if you're the freaking expert for this person in pain, pump yourself up a little bit and show them how equipped you are to help them. Right. But again, there's a lot of that, um, internal work that needs to happen as well as practically, how do you build a business in our case? Yeah. And it's this, um, I, I find, I've been finding lately that people fit into two categories. They're the, they're, there's the overthinkers and then there's the people that don't think enough. Yeah. Uh, and they take reckless action. And then the overthinkers just stay in idea and research mode. And I've started to see this trend that the overthinkers probably need to act themselves into new feelings. And then the people that don't think enough probably need to slow down and think a little bit more right. um, before they take their steps because the recklessness has produced uh, bad, bad results. Yeah. But uh, th- I, I was not into the woo-woo stuff either. You know, what I, I've definitely done a ton of research on meditation, this neural yeah. pathway stuff and dissonance. And, and um, then you start to realize that, no, no, it matters. Your, your belief yeah. very much matters in terms of your direction. I mean, your, your, your belief is the tip of the spear to your yeah. action. And yeah, the, the, yeah. the question is like, is manifesting yeah. actually changing elements out there in the ether or is manifesting <laughs> setting a big goal and then yeah. unconsciously yeah. aligning your yeah. behaviors more so to make that happen. Right? right. Once you've committed to that goal. Now people yeah. can also use their vision board as an excuse or like, Hey, I, I manifested, you know, $10 million in a, yeah. in a, uh, in a trip with Tony Robbins and it hasn't happened yet but I also haven't been working on it. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's, it's not, it, it's, I, I don't, I don't like to get too far into the, like too far into yeah. the woo stuff. Like I, I, all I care about, honestly, all I care about is results for someone. Mm-hmm. Like how can I transform an outcome? Mm-hmm. And, and for me, it's for some people, they need to adjust their beliefs and they're not thinking enough for some people. They probably need to act themselves into a feeling um, and, and just take a shot. Cause, cause some people are so afraid of taking action um, that it totally hamstrings them. So they can't even take the first step. Right. I've been interesting. I've been, um, what I hear a lot, cause I've probably talked with, uh, in the last six months, maybe 500 people individually. Um, and what I've learned is when you ask people, what's like the number one thing holding them back, they will identify some form of fear of failure. Mm-hmm. And then I started to realize what it was. It wasn't just fear of failure. That was surface level. It was fear of failing in front of others and not just fear of failing in front of others, fear of failing in front of others. They wanted validation from. Yeah. And then, so they get in this constant research mode and this constant permission seeking mode, you know, should I do this? Mom, what do you think? Friend, what do you think? Boss, what do you think? Should I do this? And it's couched as advice, but really it's just validation and permission seeking. And they stay stuck because they've essentially, place the responsibility of living out their purpose into everybody else's hands. And, and that's why they're yeah. stuck. 
And that's why they're stuck. And it's not, and, and part of, I noticed something else about, um, uh, and this is a, the subject of our next TEDx talk, why your purpose is your permission, is that one of the reasons that you seek permission from people to do something is because you're preemptively blame shifting. Yeah. So if I can get this person to buy into this entrepreneurial idea that I have and it fails, well, I'm not the only one to blame. That guy told me, John told me it was, I could do it. It's, it's fine. I can, I can do it. And, and so John's at fault too. It's not just me. And I have, um, in a way, mentally maybe preserved myself from losing relationship with John because he doesn't see me as much of a failure because he gave me permission to do it. Totally. I love it. Uh, Brian, this has been great. And um, I'm glad we talked now. I'm also kind of wishing we had talked before because yeah. yeah. <laughs> we've got so much overlap. And I, I really just like the yeah. work you're doing. You know, I love your story and how you ended up here. And um, I just think it's really powerful stuff. Um, and, and I love that you've created your own process for, for helping people, um, do this work. Um, that being said, you know, how can people, uh, find out more about you, get in touch with you? And yeah. you mentioned the TEDx talk coming up. I'd love, you know, to, for people to know how they can, um, uh, get that stuff, but yeah, let us know what yeah. we should know. And then of course we'll add links and descriptions. And, um, sure. if you're listening to the podcast, this will be in the podcast notes and everything. Sure. I mean, uh, the TEDx talk is going to be on the TEDx YouTube channel, I'm sure. I think it releases June 6th. I don't know if it'll hit the YouTube channel of TEDx on June 6th, uh, but it's called Why Your Purpose Is Your Permission. Uh, our book, The Purpose Factor, Extreme Clarity for Why You're Here and What to Do About It, purposefactorbook.com. Um, where we hang out the most with people is at sevenfigurepurpose.com. It's our kind of private invite-only Facebook group for people who are interested in mind hat, you know, mindset hacks, how to discover what's next for you, all of that. So sevenfigurepurpose.com is probably the, the center central hub of, of where we hang out for sure. Cool. Awesome. We'll, we'll put those links in the description. And again, Brian, it's, it's great to see you first of all, as just personally, and also um, just lots of fun, excuse me, overlap professionally. So thanks again for doing this. And I, I'd love to have you back sometime. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Let's do it. Thanks, Brian.